there are many injunctions that are offered to us. But one story in particular, Moses and Aaron and 70 elders go up to visit the Almighty, to sit with God, have a meal. Mystical, transformative experience, what sages of later eras would call a rising of the spirit, a travel of the spirit. This near magical, almost unattainable perception and potential. And also earlier in the previous chapter, we're told that you should not tolerate a sorceress, that witches and warlocks are not to be found amid your people. What I want to challenge a little bit is the idea among humans and certainly among artists of magical thinking, that somehow the world will just deliver to us what we need and we deserve material success and artistic output and throughput. But the simple truth is, as I would say to my children, talent can only take you about 5 or 10% of the way there. Another 80 or 90% is hard work, and then a little bit is serendipity and luck that you find your market, you find your collaborators, you find your medium, you find the time. So I think it's a continual work against magical thinking, against the idea that our souls and spirits might just rise up into a, an elevated space of artistry, that we might endow ourselves or be endowed with magic. These are not typical occurrences. These are snares, this sort of thinking. The idea that we can just wait upon inspiration and wait for art to arrive to us like magic. But it is not. Shocking to me as I proceed, proceed in my work, how much hard work goes into making good art. And some of that work is, strictly speaking, internal. Learning of ourselves, becoming our most whole and full self, but also becoming self-aware. And knowing what it is within us that is our truest, deepest, unstainable, unstealable point, what James Brown would have called the soul. We're told this week in the Torah that you should not hear nor bear a false report, not to be a poor witness, not to lie, not to speak in arrogance, not to deceive. But this is not simply a matter of court cases, says the later tradition, the rabbinic tradition in Talmud and what's called Midrash, Talmud being a collection of stories, lore, contradiction, conflict and conversation from the 2nd, 3rd, 4th, and 5th centuries, and Midrash, the rabbinic tradition of fan fiction, both as a genre and a specific text. So we're told in these sources from the early part of the common millennium that there is a prohibition against exploitation in buying and selling, but there's a prohibition in statements that you shouldn't lie to others, verbally mistreat them, or mistreat yourself. And elsewhere, that there are seven types of thieves but the first and most prominent is those who steal minds, those who engage in deception and self-deception. One of the efforts of moving past magical thinking and towards a possibility of hard work, if not dictating the output, at least promoting the outputs of art and success, material or otherwise, that we hope for, is 
growing in self-awareness, not deceiving ourselves into thinking we are special or unique artists that can't be understood by the market, can't be understood by the broader world. If you haven't watched the movie Dig from, oh, two decades ago about the Brian Jonestown Massacre and um, the Dandy Warhols, those two bands kind of in a brotherly rivalry, it's, it's pretty clear that the lead singer of the Brian Jonestown Massacre, An- Anton, I f- can't recall his last name, is pretty delusional, both in the sense of probably having some mental illness, but also hyper-arrogance and lack of self-awareness. That's what we need to work against, right? There's, there's a reason, despite making really beautiful music, the Brian Jonestown Massacre is not more broadly known, because the artists get in their own way trip themselves up with their own delusion, self-deception, and lying to themselves. But if you can square that away, if you can be alert to your own pitfalls, your own snares, there's other work to be done. There's the work of cultivating one's own voice, the work of not being led astray by voices around you, the work of not succumbing to the demands of the market any more than absolutely necessary, of not letting one's art or photography, for example, be influenced by what Instagram is asking for, but to make something that is true, authentic, and truly you. So we're told in Torah this week, in Hebrew scripture, that you should not incline after the majority. What a great statement for an artist. We're so desperate to be accepted, to be known, to find audience, that we might ape what came before, we might orient our song or our sculpture to what's already known, to what's popular, frankly. But as Rick Rubin points out, the audience only knows what came before. It doesn't know what's coming. So these are fool's errands. These are a kind of magical thinking to incline yourself to the majority, to try to be popular, whether you're talking about junior high or in the recording studio. You shouldn't, as our sages point out, be influenced by the fact that the majority thinks differently than you. That's what makes you an artist a unique viewpoint, a distinct perspective, an ability and have sensitivity and empathy and compassion to understand your own perspective, but to apply it broadly, not to be influenced by the majority. And this says one of our sages applies, even if you know beforehand that they won't accept your viewpoint, but the common person will accept the view of the majority, you should still hold to what you believe. Unfortunately, we all know cases of art that are only embraced long after the artist's death. That there are albums that were made the year before I was born. Oh, let's just be honest about it. It's Pink Moon by Nick Drake. They were never commercially successful in Drake's lifetime, but have meant something deeply to me 30 and 50 years later. They might not accept you. And you don't have to be harsh or self-deceptive, arrogant or self-destructive when that happens. But you do have to hold to that small, still voice within you that leads you to both compassion and passion, that leads you to self and other. We're told in the Torah that you shouldn't side with the mighty or the poor, which is a way of saying, as David Brooks points out in his new book, you have to have compassion for all. You have to Be able to do perspective taking, especially through the conversation with others and the awareness of cultural and scene. You have to be able to hear. You have to be able to listen and express and know of. 
neither to side with the mighty or the poor, but at all times also to be alert with compassion to the vulnerable. We're told here and elsewhere not to oppress those who would be strangers among us, not to oppress a convert, a sojourner, or an immigrant, not to oppress a widow or an orphan, those who are vulnerable in society. And great art quite often has compassion, has empathy, sometimes just pity, sometimes concern, sometimes a looking out for those who are not like us, who are dismissed, stepped upon. Even the part of us as artists that is crushed by the machine. Converts, says one of our sages, are chosen in Torah to represent the vulnerable because once one converts, once one becomes part of a new society, a new people, a new citizenship, you don't have any protections of family, family of origin, of community of origin. You're left standing alone. These are the people art needs to reach. These are the people art needs to be for, not just the mighty, not just the poor, but the vulnerable, those who are of broken spirit, those who struggle. We have the potential to reach them, to bring them uplift, to bring them a pop song, to bring them a dark melody, to help them through the valley of shadow, to support those who need our love through our arts making. First of all, ourselves. The art is also for you, and the part of you that is vulnerable and broken. And in addition to compassion, honestly, we need come, we need passion. We need fire. There's this great quote when it talks about protecting the stranger. Isaac Latzer of Petersburg, who I think is writing in the 19th century or so, points out that sometimes mercy and anger are inverted, and that anger is better than mercy. You need to have righteous indignation at what's wrong. He says, if you see a person battering or inflicting suffering on a fellow, a cruel person would do nothing, but a merciful person would be furious. We need compassion, yes. We need understanding. We need to reach our art and artistry and empathy out towards others, but we also need passion. We need to know it matters. We need to be punks. We need to be metalheads. We need to be driven. We need to make art that is violent and furious to decry what's wrong. Two sides of the same coin, passion and compassion. And I want to leave you with a fascinating sentence in this works, this week's Torah portion. We have come out in the recent Torah reading, Exodus 20, of the revelation at Sinai. And there is this odd linguistic inversion in chapter 24. The people say, all that God has spoken, we will do and we will listen. They don't say we will listen and then do. We will say we will do it and then we will hear it. That's a good artist's motto sometimes. You can't just wait for the conditions to be just right. You can't have all the information. You can't completely learn. Art school will never be long enough. Sometimes you just got to do got to step out, step past the magical thinking, step past the self-delusion, step past the favoring of the right or the wrong, the rich or the poor, learning with compassion and passion to just do, to create, to make. That's your task.